Hey there. Welcome to The Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid. And I'm your producer, Zena Heilingha. The toilet. You use it every day, and yet you probably never think about it. While it may seem odd to say the toilet is a representation of many of our societal challenges, It represents technological lock-in, resource management, inequality, and even class, racial, and queer struggle. In this episode, we speak with environmental journalist, author of the book Pipe Dreams, The Urgent Global Quest to Transform the Toilet, and certified potty professional, Chelsea Wald. We talk about the hidden geographies of the toilet and what we need to do in order to prevent shit from hitting the fan. Pun intended. a super special episode planned for you guys. Usually when you tune into this podcast, you'll probably hear a professor or some other academic talking about something in the field of geography. But today we decided to branch out of our comfort zones and invite Chelsea Wald, an environmental journalist and an expert on something that all of us use in our day-to-day lives, but never really seem to talk about, the toilet. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me and um, and for reading the book and for your interest in the topic of toilets. It's it's um, it's not for everyone, although I think it ought to be. I agree with you on that. Well, there's that famous quote, right? Everybody poops. Good quote. So obviously the toilet is something that concerns us all, like you mentioned. But how did you find yourself interested in the topic and then so intimately involved with the toilet as you are today? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not anything that I would have anticipated. I mean, I, I'm, you know, when I was a kid, I, I was sort of the last person, you know, you you would have um, expected to write a book about toilets. Um, but it, you know, I maybe I'm just a testament to the fact that everybody uh, has this in them potentially because it's such a fascinating topic. Um, I'm I. I am a science and environmental journalist. I was writing on all kinds of science and environmental topics. Um, And uh, just a little bit of sort of background about how I work, about how my field works, my industry works, is that when I write a story, it can come to me in um, two different ways. Either I come up with the idea of the story and I pitch it to an editor or the editor comes up with a story idea and pitches it to me. And in fact, this came to me in that way. So actually two different editors, and this was way back in 2012 or 2013, came to me with story ideas that happened to touch on the topic of toilets, both of them. Um, and from two different magazines in one year. And through pursuing those stories, one was on toilets for very low resource contexts where people might not have any toilets. And the other story 
was um, actually about heat in our cities and where we might get heat. And it turned out that sewers was one of the places where we throw away a lot of heat and we might be able to pull back heat from our sewers. So it was through the combination of these two stories that I personally got interested in the topic. Um, And I developed it as a bit of a niche for myself as a journalist. Um, I'm a freelancer, so I'm always looking for some something that's kind of mine, you know, a topic that I can own personally. There were so few people working on the topic in a kind of in-depth way who had a deep understanding of it. And so I just kept looking more and more deeply into it and finding more and more researchers who were working on innovations in this subject. And I, be- and I-, I became curious because actually my thought at the time was that toilets were fantastic. One of um, the world's greatest inventions, you know, nearly perfect, you know, they, they, they work beautifully. They extend, you know, they've kept us, you know, in places where we have toilets, you know, they keep us relatively disease free and, you know, they've won, they've, they're, you know, you know, basically a modern miracle. So then I was wondering, why is everyone trying to innovate this technology that seems to be working so well? Um, And then so the process of answering that question led to me um, writing a whole book about what's going on with our toilets and, and where we might go with them in the future. Right, because I think when when you first think of the toilet, it's really hard to imagine that there's enough stuff about it to, to write an entire book. But I think if you just take a moment, take a step back, you realize how important the toilet is to us in our day-to-day lives, but also, as I imagine, throughout history. So before we kind of talk about maybe like the future of the toilet and, and where the toilet is going and where the toilet is today, I would love to jump back in time. So obviously we always had to, well go somewhere and it probably made sense that we went in a centralized place but when did we have our our first toilets where is the starting point of this technology well i mean for as long as as you know uh humans have existed we've had you know to find some place to go i mean that's you know it's not like there was ever a time before the concept of a toilet in a sense because at the very least can I say shit? <laughs> of course. At <laughs> <laughs> the very least, it stinks, right? It stinks. And so you don't want it in your camp. You don't want it in your cave necessarily or whatever. So, uh, you know, presumably people had some strategy for dealing with shit, you know, from before history. And um, in fact, you know, there's very early sort of pits, um, pit latrines, even piping systems. Um, things like that. But um, different technologies arose independently in different places at different times. Where we get the modern toilet is really um, in England in the late 18th and the 19th centuries. There was actually uh, an early version of the flush toilet, flush meaning using water to um, rinse the waste out of the toilet, you know, so there was a very early sort of design, I think, um, from Sir John Harrington in the late 16th century. So he came up with sort of the earliest design for the flush toilet, but it didn't catch on 
widely. There wasn't really piped water, so so it wasn't really practical to have a flush toilet, but then it did become practical to have flush toilets, um, and there were some advancements in the design in the late 18th century, um, and then they started becoming installed more widely um, at that point. Uh, and so at that time, actually, toilets looked very similar in some ways to what we have today. You have a cistern that fills up with water. The water then you know, carries the waste out of the bowl. Water is very good for that. And then it sort of leaves a little bit of water behind, which seals the pipe up so that the smells don't come back up the pipe. I mean, when you're talking about toilets, we're talking a lot about smell avoidance, stench avoidance, you know, that was really what their big concern was. Um, Not so much disease, which they didn't really understand. Um, But the problem at that point was then you had all of this water and there was no sewer system. It would, it would go out to these cesspools, um, which previously only held shit. And now they're holding shit and water and they're overflowing and they're leaking and it's causing all kinds, or or it's running into gutters and it's causing all kinds of problems in these rapidly growing cities like London. And as a result of that, there was a need for a system to then take all of that water away. And that then became sort of the sewer system. And then, um, that didn't solve the problem because that would just take it away to rivers to a great extent, um, which would then just pollute the rivers. Uh, and so at that point, there was a need for wastewater treatment, and that was developed in the early 20th century. And then over the course of the 20th century, wastewater treatment became very widespread, in at least in sort of the wealthier um, uh, parts of the world. And so that that's sort of how this system got haphazardly uh, many, in many ways uh, developed over time. And then um, it's since then, you know, there have been different stages of wastewater treatment that have been added on um, in order to um, make it less polluting um, and to recover perhaps some of the valuable nutrients um, and carbon and, you know, various things. But but fundamentally, it's a system that was developed in the, the late 19th and early 20th century and hasn't changed extensively since then. And we're pretty locked into it, interestingly, because we've invested so much money into it um, that that it's it's very hard to to change. It's easier to just sort of add on to and repair than it is to actually change in a kind of fundamental way. Yeah. I mean, I find that super interesting. One that, well, the toilet that we know today has only really been around for about a hundred years. And that too, within those hundred years, we haven't really thought to make any, any edits. That seems really crazy to me. But also, the, there's this impression that uh, once you finish what you're doing there, you press a little button or you push on a little knob, and whatever you created just sort of disappears and we never think about it again. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the sewage systems and where does it all go once it's gone? Yeah, um, uh, so the question is, 
where where does all of it go? Yeah, what happens, right? What happens? Yeah, what happens when you use the toilet, right? This is this is my my four year old son's question, and he's pretty good at answering it because he has me as a mom. <laughs> where does it go? So um, so when you flush. Um, the contents that you flush, we can call it we can call it toilet waste. I actually don't necessarily prefer to use the term waste because I think that we need to rethink the concept of pee and poop as waste. But we could call it. Um, I mean, the experts call it excreta, <laughs> but that's a little. That's a, it's very hard to find the right word. So understanding that it's hard to find the right word, we can just call it toilet waste. Um, it, it goes down, so it's water, pee, poo, paper, um, hopefully nothing more than that. That's all you're supposed to flush. It goes, you know, through the pipes in your house into a sewer. Depending on where you live, if you, assuming you, ha- you have access to this kind of centralized system, right, which, you know, is, is true in some places and very much not true in others, um, uh, it, depending on where, where you live, that... Sewer may be a sewer that's really dedicated for wastewater, or it might be one that also takes in sometimes some stormwater, which can be really problematic. And a lot of cities are involved in very expensive programs to separate their sewer system into stormwater and sewer system. If it goes into a sewer, just a a, a sewer system just for wastewater, uh, it will travel through a series of pipes. There might be some pumps um, that, you know, kind of allow it to to flow, hopefully a bit downhill um, to a wastewater treatment plant, which is a, a multi-staged process that f- first they, you know, it filters out large things, trash, like anything that might get flushed that shouldn't be in there. Like I've heard of people accidentally flushing t-shirts down and all kinds of things go down. Um, but then uh, there's a, there's a, uh, and the grit settles out. And then there's, there's a, a process whereby bacteria um, eat, you know, all of the poop in, in the water and, um, and then um, sort of settle out in, and that becomes the biosolids, um, which is the waste product from from wastewater treatment. And then you have the water, which often, which is which is considered clean or cleaned, and that often gets um, released into a nearby water body, depending on what's nearby, like a river. Um, or, or the sea, or a lake. Um, in some cases, it can be reused, you know, treated additionally and reused. The level of treatment of that water really depends on local regulations. And then the solids are a really big hassle <laughs> for wastewater treatment plants. Um, and those can be reused in a number of ways, depending on where you live. Some In some places, it's very common that they go on to fields as a kind of um, sort of like a fertilizer um, to put the carbon back into the soil and some nitrogen, um, or they can be incinerated like they are here in, in the Netherlands, or um, they can be landfilled in some cases, um, which is, is not very desirable, but um, some, in some places that's the only option. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's so fascinating, and I think when we when we think of the sewage system, it's such a clear part of urban planning and and public goods that we all kind of take for granted, right? There's this whole journey of from where the things go from from a private bathroom or a restaurant or any other kind of public restroom um, back into these sanitation facilities, like you mentioned, and you also touched really importantly on on the importance of sanitation and kind of what happens when these systems begin to fail. And I think that these questions are really, really important as we're starting to see more and more mega cities where millions and millions of people live. And I imagine that when these sewage systems fail, it it could be catastrophic, yeah. especially right. in these you, we, It's almost like it goes without saying how important the toilet is. All you have to do is imagine your life without one. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and you mentioned earlier that the toilet hasn't really changed since 1890. And I'm, I'm trying to rack my brain thinking about literally any technology we have today that hasn't been innovated or adjusted in some kind of major way over the last century. So it, it's also really hard for me to imagine that this toilet we made in 1890 is still a viable option for us today and the circumstances we see in our modern world and the problems we have. So what are the sort of issues we have with this current model of the toilet that we're refusing to update? Yeah, so the the, the toilet was not, they were the system that we're talking about. I just use toilet as as shorthand, really. But it isn't designed to deal, because it was, at the time it, which it was designed and the way in which it was designed, it certainly isn't designed to deal with the problems that we are going to be facing, we're facing now and are going to be facing into the future. Um, climate change being a big one. Um, uh, different kinds of nutrient pollution, um, especially nitrogen pollution, which is causing um, big algal blooms in in waterways, in, in oceans. Um, and, uh, you know, water scarcity, of course, is something that people often think about um, when they think about toilets and using, uh, you know, clean, drinkable water in many cases to to flush them, which, you know, doesn't make any sense at all. Um, uh, there's in, inequality, you know, is is a big issue, and we see inequality in toilets. Um, so there's a lot of, I mean, pretty much every <laughs> issue that that we face into the future is one that's not that the the toilet as we have it can, actually is a contributor to the to the problem. It's not the cause of the problem usually, but it's a contributor to the problem. And on the flip side, what I found is is that it can also be a solution, a partial solution to the problem. So um, it can kind of go either way depending on how you're looking at it. If we break down these problems, could you maybe give some examples of solutions? Yeah. So maybe if we talk about, um, for instance, climate change, how could the the toilet mm. be a contributor to a solution to, to yeah. that problem? Well, climate change is a good one because I can kind of break down how it's a um, let's say let's say it's it's three things. It's a contributor. It's a it's a victim. <laughs> And it's a solution, right? It's a it's at risk from climate change. So it's a contributor because wastewater um, treatment um, is a huge 
uh, hog of energy. And um, in many U.S. cities, at least, it is, is the biggest, ener- biggest portion of the energy bill um, in, many, in many cities. So that's how much energy it actually uses. Um, and it has, it's associated with emissions. So wastewater treatment, as it exists, is that, you know, has nitrogen, nitrous oxide, if I'm correct, emissions, and, and carbon dioxide emissions, um, methane emissions. So um, it, it's actually emitting greenhouse gases. So it's contributing um, to climate change. Of course, it's not like um, fossil fuel use in the sense that it's, you know, a, a, a huge cause, you know, the big cause of, of climate change, but it is um, the wastewater treatment industry is is having to come to terms with the fact that it is a contributor to climate change. It's vulnerable to climate change because wastewater treatment plants are often located right near water bodies as um, sea levels are rising, as storms are causing flooding. And they're very vulnerable because if these wastewater treatment plants get flooded, it can take a long time to get them back online. So it can take, it can take a month to get a wastewater treatment plant on, back online after having been flooded quite easily a month. And all that time, that means wastewater isn't being treated in the city. Um, and so there's even wastewater treatment plants that are being moved wholesale inland because they're vulnerable and because if they do get flooded, not only do they not work, but they're polluting fragile water bodies potentially. Um, and then they can be a uh, solution for climate change um, in, in a number of ways. So I talked a little bit about biosolids, the solid residue that is a byproduct of the treatment process. I have been following a, a program that has been looking to turn those biosolids into a kind of bio crude. They put it under high pressure and temperature to, over a short period of time, mimic the kind of process that turns that, that created fossil fuels. And so they, they sort of cre- can create a bio-crude through this process um, from these wastewater solids. And that can then could then be used as a transportation fuel, like an aviation fuel. And so um, there is the potential to make use of this really troublesome byproduct um, in a new way that is, in fact, a climate solution. And that's a process known as hydrothermal liquefaction. And there, and there's some, it's still in a kind of demonstration phase, but um, if it can be scaled, um, it's, uh, it's incredibly promising um, for many reasons. You know, it's, it's a, it's a massive sort of upcycling um, of this, of this byproduct that, that has been so troublesome for the industry. Yeah, so you mentioned about all all of these sort of pitfalls in the technology that we have of the current toilet. So I'm wondering if you had any specific examples either from, you know, the sort of developed rich world or from elsewhere of people reimagining the toilet in a way that's functional and implementable. Yeah, so I, I was able to look at um, a, a number of 
projects that are not quite at scale. So you know, th- but they're they're not they're not they're not pilot projects either. So they're they're running, they're up and running, and they're showing that that um, they're showing the way to the future. Um, and and they're you know they're ongoing um, projects. And one of them was. Um, in the north of the Netherlands, in a in a city called Snake, where there is a system in in a small housing development where people have vacuum toilets in their homes, and vacuum toilets are like what you experience in an airplane, maybe, but these are more um, these are these are are less like. Yeah, they're more just like regular toilets. They just kind of make a sucking sound instead of a um, instead of a flush. So they kind of suck. You know, there's a little bit of water, but it basically sucks out the the waste instead of um, flushing it out with water. And all of that then goes to a, a small treatment center there. So this is a sort of decentralized system where um, on site they they. Um, there's an anaerobic digester, which then creates um, a, a gas that can be used, a biogas that can be used um, for heating um, in people's homes. Um, so it just kind of takes the resources and puts it it back right there on site into the system. Um, and it cleans the water. The water could be reused there. It isn't currently um, f- for a, a number of reasons, but it but it could be. And some um, fertilizer nutrients are also taken out that could be used, for example, in a local, in the yard, you know, in the garden on site. And so it's it's really about, you know, sort of hyper local use of the nutrients. Um, so it's, 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 it's wildly different because normally we're used to flushing the waste away and sending it really as far away from our homes as possible, <laughs> you know, to a wastewater treatment plant very far away on the other side of town or like hopefully not anywhere near us. Um, whereas this is saying, hey, we think this is valuable. We want to keep it here close to us for our own use. And I think that's a really big mental shift. You know, you walk out your front door, there's your wastewater treatment building right there in front of you. Um, and it doesn't, didn't smell, and it's it's no nuisance at all to the people who live there. They even um, use their put their food waste um, into the system, so that gets turned into biogas as well through through a um, through the system. And uh, and I, I think and um, it's just something that could be implemented anywhere, and it's kind of like no big deal. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like fine. And I, I think, I think that's what people want out of their toilets. You know, they don't want something like sort of fancy and newfangled. They just want it to work and be fine. And that's what this, um, what this installation really does. It's, it's just straightforward. It works and, and people don't mind it. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, Likewise, I saw a very different kind of system in, 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 um, that's been implemented in um, Haiti, in uh, very poor neighborhoods in Haiti where people have, you know, usually a best um, access to a pit latrine, basically an outhouse, um, in, often in very poor condition. Um, 
and this is in a very densely populated area. Um, so, so this is, you know, not, not private, not safe at night, um, and can overflow um, when it rains, which it does very often. And this is a completely different um, kind of program that's been inst- has been implemented there, which is called container-based sanitation, where people have um, uh, basically movable toilets in their home um, that they can they can put anywhere where they can get some privacy. Um, there's a container inside the toilet that they um, basically put out. Um, outside on an, on a regular basis, just like any kind of um, recycling or compost pickup, and a service comes around and, and picks up the full containers and leaves empty containers, and then they take the full containers overground. So this is so different. This is sort of also a very opposite system to an underground system. So they take it overground um, to a composting center. Um, where it gets turned into compost, which is very needed um, because Haiti's soils are very highly depleted. And so this is showing, this is one example of container-based sanitation. There's quite a few of these now around the world showing a very different way of um, doing things. And people pay, uh, you know, a a fee for this service, um, uh, because uh, they value it. In your book, you also give an example of uh, how the toilet can be used as uh, residential heating. I thought it was a pretty cool example of mm. how the toilet is a good solution to climate change. Yeah, so so this is a really great idea, and it's something that's been implemented in, in a few cities Um uh, you know, in a few locations around the world. Um, there's a lot of talk about heat pumps these days as a sort of low carbon heat source, and that usually takes heat from the ground. But it turns out that sewers are like potentially a better, in a city, a better source of heat um, for buildings. And what you can do is you can just tap into the sewer, um, which is warm because, uh, not because of toilets so much actually, but because of washing machines, showers, you know, all of that hot water that we put down in the sewer and it's also underground. Um, so it's, you know, it's quite warm in the winter. And if we could just, you can use a heat pump to pull that heat back up again into buildings. And what's really cool about heat pumps is that they can also work in reverse. And so in the summer, you can use it to cool buildings, even though it is quite warm in the sewer. But it's the technology is such that it that it still works. It's a little bit mind-bending, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think what's so interesting about this answer is that we're not actually as locked into the current toilet as as we seem to think we are. And I imagine that as plumbing sort of expands to more and more places, and I'm especially immediately thinking of sub-Saharan Africa, where there isn't access to this much water, we're going to have to find another solution. So is there a way to to change the system um, to make it less intensive on this resource that is becoming increasingly scarce in increasing parts of the world? One of the things that has happened 
in this field is that there's been this sense that there's this one standard for wealthy countries and then there's another standard, lower standard for the poorer countries. And um, so there's this sort of inequality that can be built into this idea of creating new toilet technologies. And I think that that's something to be really careful about. Um, that because uh, what's happened is that people have rightly rejected the idea of a second-class toilet. You know, everyone wants the good toilet. No one wants the second-class um, toilet. So, uh, so I just want to put that out there when we're talking about, you know, sort of lower resource contexts. It's really important to not think about innovating you know, to create a toilet for the poor. Toilet, you know, good toilets should be good for everyone. And in fact, there's more um, need for toilet innovation in, say, Europe than you might realize. Um, so one thing, for example, that I've been looking into and that I continue to look into is, and this this would apply worldwide, there's, there's, um, ideas that are that are being implemented in every kind of context is the idea of source separation. So you can think of um, recycling. We separate our recycling into different bins, right? So the toilet could work the same way where the urine goes into one pipe um, and the poo goes into another area and you may or may not have water with it. But in the very least, you would use less water doing it this way. I mean, we already have in, in, in Europe very often the dual flush where you have the shorter flush and the longer flush, but in theory, you don't even need water for urine flushes if it were to go into to a different um, place. And that wouldn't just save water, but what it does is just like in recycling, really, when you keep these um, parts of the stream separate, you can recover resources from them more efficiently. So urine has most of the nutrients in the toilet waste and um, very, very few pathogens. So it's a very easy, except for the fact that it's very watery, which is heavy, um, makes it too, too bulky, basically. Um, it's, a, it's, it's relatively easy substance to work with, whereas the poop, you know, is a more dangerous substance. It's a more hazardous substance because it has the most of the pathogens in it and you need to treat it in a different way. So if we can kind of keep these two parts separated, then you can create a new toilet that uses less water and is more resource efficient, you could say. So what can you use urine for? Well, urine has most of the nutrients. So when I say nutrients, I mean the fertilizer nutrients. So you can actually make, so it's got the nitrogen, it's got the phosphorus, and then all of these, you know, potassium, so N, NPK, and then it's got all these micronutrients too, which are the, the sulfur and other um, uh, elements that plants need to grow. Um, so you eat them, and then they you don't use them all in your body, and then they come out one way or the other, but they actually come out more in your pee than in your poo. And the poo has the carbon in it and stuff, so that's also good for, um, for 
using in in um, agriculture if you treat it properly. But the urine, yeah, urine is a is a you know sort of more concentrated substance, and um, and you can and so scientists are working on finding ways to treat urine to to capture it separately, treat it, maybe dry it, concentrate it so that it can be um, used as a fertilizer or um, in some cases to take out the specific elements. So just have nitrogen or just have um, phosphorus and those can also feed into other industrial processes because there's a need for these um, these as these elements as industrial chemicals. And so instead of just flushing them away um, and having them end up in, in waterways or less efficiently recovered at a wastewater treatment plant in some cases, um, these can be recovered much more efficiently, maybe on site or um, you know nearby. Like in Paris, um, in fact, there's a new eco-housing development going up, and they're installing these urine-diverting toilets into the units um, of this housing block, and so the urine will be collected and, and treated for this whole uh, residential development. Why is it that if there are so much good innovations, I think you gave a lot of examples right now, that, as you said, we are kind of still locked into the old toilet. Yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a few reasons. I mean, um, there's a lot of inertia in the system, you know, there's, there's, there's so many levels of mind of people in the system and, and institutions and minds to change in order to um, create, you know, to really implement something new in this space. So everything from the user, um, the user has to accept a new toilet, and learn how to use it and, you know, feel good about it. Um, the plumbers have to learn how to install the toilet. There's actually a lot of inertia there. Nothing, I love plumbers. This is nothing against plumbers, but they have their certifications. They they know the regulations as they are. The regulations don't allow for these kinds of new toilets in a lot of cases. You know, the regulations are quite strict. And in many cases, they're quite old as well, and they need updating in order to allow for these. Um, and then, you know, as you go up, you have politicians, you have utility leaders. Um, everyone needs to change their minds. Even um, fertilizer companies have to change their minds about whether or not they're going to use this source of um, fertilizers, which they may fear could turn off customers. And so whether or not that's true, there's, you know, going to be naturally a lot of resistance to it. I mean, I, we have this very innate and, and in some ways healthy sense of disgust when it comes to um, dealing with our waste. It can be dangerous. And so I think it's kept our species safe to have this discussed, but it's also something that um, we need to figure out a way to overcome if we're going to sort of live um, in a more balanced way on this planet. Yeah, and, and what I'm hearing, though, too, is that I, I imagine that to make this sort of very necessary shift to, to the new toilet system, 
it requires everyone involved to sort of shift their mindset. So not only us individually on the day-to-day, but when I think about it, the toilet system and the sewage system you know, affects almost every level of governance, from urban government governance to rural governance to federal governments. So my next question, and kind of shifting gears here, is how do toilets change based on the cultural context, right? So I know, at least in the U.S., we're kind of enthralled in this huge debate about the public toilet. One, the fact that there's very few public toilets in the U.S. is a problem on its own. But beside that, there's there's this real debate about who has access to the toilet and when and why. And this goes into these sort of queer struggles and racial struggles. And the toilet really represents this this kind of location of power and debate and struggle. And if you've ever been in the Netherlands, you may have seen these really public urinals that are often in kind of really busy squares of the cities. And you'll be kind of walking to go get your morning coffee and you'll end up seeing something you don't necessarily want to see at 10 in the morning. And at the same time, you don't have those options for women or for anyone who well can't use a urinal. So I'm curious to know, how does the toilet reflect systems of power? Yes, what happened in, in many cities in the U.S., and I think in many places around the world, is that uh, public toilets um, a couple decades ago began disappearing, basically, from public spaces. And being replaced just as a matter of necessity by toilets that are available in restaurants and cafes, Starbucks being very popular toilet for many people to use. And a lot of governments stopped, you know, just found it to be um, very costly to run a public toilet and stopped funding those kinds of public amenities. Uh, And then they became unpopular as they became seen as a place where people were using drugs, for example, there was there was a spate of stories about people overdosing in toilets and it became difficult to police them and they yeah, they, they became places to avoid and then they ended up closing altogether. So there's a lot of stuff kind of going on with the public toilets and um, and not just that, but but basically they they started disappearing and then they were being replaced by Starbucks bathrooms. And then that um, a couple years ago um, uh, it became clear that that was a problem because, um, you know, there the, there was a discrepancy in terms of who was allowed to use these Starbucks or other cafe or restaurant bathrooms. Who is it, who can walk into a private establishment and say, "Hey, you mind if I use your toilet?" <laughs> um, and um, I, as a uh, well, you know, white woman who you know, can, you know, that's probably enough, um, can, can do that pretty easily. Um, but, but, um, there was a, a, a very big news story in the U S, um, several years ago where some black patrons were arrested for, um, asking to use the toilet and, uh, they were denied the toilet, I think. And then they sat down um, waited for their companion and hadn't placed an order. And before their companion could come join them, they had been arrested, which is 
uh, scandalous, and of course was a giant scandal. And um, and it became clear that that um, that wouldn't work. And at that point, Starbucks said, "Okay, we're going to just open our restrooms." Um, to anybody so that this doesn't happen. They, in fact, closed their stores for sort of a retraining of all of their staff. Interestingly, in this past year, they reversed that. I don't know that much about it, but I read a news story that they had reversed that, and they said, you know, we can't be the public restroom for every city that doesn't work for us. And um, I, the way I read that is that there has been a growing conversation about the need for public toilets. So the, the conversation has shifted away from Starbucks is racist to we need more public amenities. You know, we need to fund these amenities so that we don't, you know, so that everybody has access to a toilet. And, um, you know, we may, there may still be some of these issues that arose, but there's there's also a growing number of models for public toilets that can start to address maybe some of the costs and um, some of the other issues that plagued public toilets and caused them to shut in the first place. And so in my book, I also look at some of those models, which range from a kind of indestructible public toilet um, called the Portland Loo, to um, to some models that, for example, where the city is actually paying a private establishment to open its toilets to everybody. So a sort of more commercial, private-public partnership type of model, um, none of which is perfect, but um, maybe in combination could be quite promising. Right, because what you're saying, and my immediate thought is, is to me, the public toilet... It's kind of a, a human right, you know? We all should have the right to be able to use a toilet that is safe and clean, regardless of our class or racial or whatever status. And there was a story that came out of L.A. a few years ago. And L.A., of course, has this pretty globally known homeless problem where because of the lack of access to proper toilets, people who were unhoused were defecating in the streets and that was getting into the waterways because it wasn't going through these sort of sanitation systems and it was causing people all over the city to have issues like sepsis and get amputations um so i do also see the lack of the public toilet as a massive threat to public infrastructure and public health and and just sort of kind of piggybacking off of this conversation about power um, in the U.S., you've had this sort of ongoing debate and then continuing debate about who can use what toilet depending on your gender or your gender identity. And in most cases, I think there are gender neutral toilets, at least, you know, I'm coming from the Silicon Valley progressive bubble that I grew up in. But that's not necessarily the case in all situations. And we're hearing more and more stories of, of people really becoming victim to the power dynamics of the toilet. So beyond just class and racial, I wanted to ask you, how does the toilet become a stage for queer struggle as well? So it, it's kind of funny because the to public toilets are sort of one of the last places in public that we actually sort ourselves by gender. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of weird. Like, it's not like you're walking through 
you know, male and female door regularly, you know, like when you enter the, a building, it's like only when you go to the toilet do you have to kind of go, oh yeah, right, um, I'm female. <laughs> I go there, right? Um, uh, so so naturally, I mean, it's it's a very challenging place, system for people who do not um, fit very neatly into those categories. And it's also kind of a lever of, of power for people who want to force other people into those categories. And so, you know, you have the these sort of opposing positions and it's turned into this very pitched battle in, in many states in the U.S. Um, uh, but uh, what I was able to look at for my book uh, was a project called Stalled, which um, looked at this. So it's some architects and designers and um, and historians who looked at this um, pitched battle and said, you know, this is a political problem and maybe we can approach this as a design problem rather than a political problem and find another way. And um, so they have come up with a design that um, designs restrooms for everybody that doesn't make people kind of sort (laughs) into male and female, um, disabled, um, or, you know, unisex or, you know, whatever, whatever uh, things that, you know, um, symbols people want to put on on different toilets, but but in fact, des- design what they've done is designed spaces that take into account the reasons people want to use restrooms, what people want out of restrooms, um, and and um, designed around those uses instead of these categories. Um, I guess that's the way the way I would put it. I don't know if that's the way they would put it, but. Um, but I, you know, I think it's quite nice because they've really looked at all the different kinds of people. So I have a young child, so I need a changing table in the restroom. That's really important to me. And it's very often the case that there's no changing tables in men's room, and they're only in the women's rooms. Um, you know, which is which is uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, it's also it's like a site of of feminist struggle as well. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, so they, they take that into account. They take into account the fact that some people need helpers to come in with them, with them into the bathroom. They take into account the fact that people might need um, to give themselves shots um, in the bathroom, you know, have medical, you know, sort of do medical things. You know, you might even want to just go into the bathroom and have a good cry, right? <laughs> Um, or just be alone for a little bit. And so the idea of a, of a restroom that has individual stalls that, that are private and separated, um, but that might be next to another stall in which, you know, someone else might be in and, you know, it's like kind of none of your business who's in the stall next to you. Um, but, you know, that, but that doesn't, you know, that allows you to have a lot of privacy in there. I, I think that that, you know, they see that as a, a way forward. Of course, it's expensive and it would be difficult to re- retrofit all um, restrooms to be that. But is it in terms of new buildings, if, you know, you can get the 
regulatory permissions, which they're really working on for that, then um, you have a new way forward for public restrooms um, that that isn't Victorian in its origins. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to think about how the toilet reinforces these gender norms. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud feminist. I'm uh, against gender no- gender norms as much as the next person. But then I also kind of stop and I think about the importance of having a safe space for anyone that identifies with, you know, the femme, whether mm. whatever that means. Because, you know, there's that classic trope of when all the girls go to the bathroom together in the club or in the bar, you know, what are they doing in there? Mm. And the truth is, is that the toilet, especially in these spaces that are so male dominated, like a club, become a really safe space and they become a bit of a reprise from that feeling of being watched and being perceived and you really get to take a moment to yourself. So yeah. while yes, I I believe in this sort of march towards gender neutral toilets, I would be it would be wrong for me to say that I wouldn't be sad to lose that type of space as well. I really I really appreciate that perspective because I I know what you mean. I mean, I I think it's it's uh it's meaningful to have that space. Does that space have to be the bathroom? I'm not sure, right? I mean, maybe there would be another way to think of it. Um and in some of their designs, they have sort of a community space um as well that could be you could imagine it could be a little bit of a of a quiet space away from the action. But I agree, uh, you know, you, you definitely don't, yeah, you, you wouldn't want that club feeling to, to follow you into the restroom. So, so yeah, so how can you have it be a place of, of, of rest and, and of community? Um, I do think that it's, it's possible that things are lost when we lose the men's and women's rooms um, as well. Yeah. You know, I I think what's been so eye-opening about this conversation is how much the toilet is involved in sort of every aspect of our world, right? Whether we're talking about the engineering and the design of the toilet or its importance to public infrastructure and resource management or how it reflects power and class and race and societal values, the toilet is such a multi-pronged space for conversation and and I know that when we first contacted you we we pitched you this the idea of this episode and we're like hey we're a geography podcast and you were maybe a little bit unsure as to as to where you fit but at least you know speaking on behalf of Zena and I for me it was immediately clear how much the toilet fits into our everyday geographies in ways that we might not even notice or take the time to think about. So we'll throw you kind of one last snowball question um, that's a little different than what we've been talking about, and we ask all of our guests at the end of each episode. So to you, what is geography? Yeah, so I can answer this through sort of the lens of my work as a toilet journalist, (laughs) Um, and one thing I'll tell you is that is that people write me on occasion and say, I've come across your work. I've invented a new toilet. It's fantastic. 
It can do all of this stuff. It uses very little water. It recycles the pee and the poop. And you can use it in your garden. And it's going to change the world. If only I could get this out there, this toilet would change the world. And perhaps we could say that, that geography, in, in this sense, is everything that this person who's writing me is missing about what it takes to take to bring this new toilet into the world. So um, it's not that hard, actually, to invent a new toilet technology or to come up with a new idea about how to do this, right? And like, it, lots of people have come up with new ideas. Um, and people have done it all throughout time. It's, it's the environment, it's history, it's culture, it's politics, it's taboos. Um, and it's all, it's all that stuff um, that's not actually the physical toilet that maybe we could call geography that actually has to be taken into account and that plays a really, really big role in, um, you know, what happens with the technology that is the toilet. So, you know, if we want to create a new future for the toilet, the technology needs to be embedded in a local environment and therefore you need the geographical angle to to approach it. Yes, I like that word embedded. Right. Yes, exactly. So the technology is embedded perhaps in in the geography and when it comes to toilets that's that's everything. So that's the the physical environment, the geology um as well as the the human element, the cultural elements. Um, and all of that needs to be taken into account um, when trying to create a new future for the toilet. Problem is that we've had one answer that hasn't made it too much of the world because it's it's too expensive or it's it's not suitable to a lot of places. What we need is a variety of opt-ins, all of which are considered gold standard or all considered first class toilets um, that different places, you know, uh, municipalities or communities can choose from based on their local situation, what they want, um, what their taboos are, what their goals are, what their needs are. Um, uh, and that is what I see um, happening now. And what I imagine uh, as the future of the toilet. Perhaps geography is how we could think of of all the stuff that's actually not that technology, but it's yeah, it's all the other stuff that the technology sort of works with and works through that that will will get us to a new kind of future. <laughs>